Okay. All right. Thanks. Good afternoon. Welcome to this special lecture that is sponsored by the OSU Women in Development Association, the Middle East Studies Center, the Department of Women's Studies, and of course, the Mershon Center. Um, I'm going to be circulating this sign-up sheet. We need to keep track of who comes to our events. It has to do with funding issues for the future and things like that. So we would appreciate it if you would fill this out for us. Today's speaker is Minu Moalam, from, who is Professor and Chair of Gender and Women's Studies at the University of California at Berkeley. Minu Moalam is a sociologist who received her PhD from the University of Montreal and then did a postdoc fellowship at the University of California at Berkeley. Um, she is very well known for her research on Iran, for her writings, um, feminist scholarship and area studies coinciding together. And as you may have noticed, there is outside, there are four more copies of her book, Between Warrior Brother and Veiled Sister, Islamic Fundamentalism and the Politics of Patriarchy in Iran. And if you purchase one of the four copies, she will sign it for you. And then you can take it with you. So I'm very happy that Dr. Moalam agreed to come here and to give us a talk on political and cultural citizenship, the making and unmaking of the nation in Iran. And at dinner last night, I had a preview to what is going to be discussed in the talk today. So I hope you also enjoy it. Please join me in welcoming <coughs> Professor Manu Moalam. Thank you so much, uh, Kathy, for your uh, introduction. I also wish to thank um, OSU Women in Development, Center for Middle Eastern Studies, as well as Gender and Women's Studies for sponsoring this event, and uh, also Martian Mershon Center for Security Studies. Uh, it's a pleasure and an honor to be here and to be able to uh, talk about some of my uh, projects and ideas and research here. Uh, what I would like to talk about today is uh, uh, the concept of political and uh, cultural citizenship, and I'm going to specifically address the uh, doing and undoing of the Islamic nation in Iran, my specific case studies Iran. So what I would like to do, I would like to uh, elaborate on the concept of uh, cultural citizenship at the beginning, and then uh, move to uh, an analysis or a discussion of Islamic nationalism and transnationalism in Iran. Uh, and specifically the significance of uh, gender issues and women's issues in the construction of that uh, form of uh, citizenship, and then uh, move to uh, the importance of media technologies and the medium of film uh, in uh, creating a site of negotiation 
within the context of cultural citizenship in Iran. And I would like to argue at the end of my, uh, article, uh, my paper, my presentation, that uh, the, there is a convergence between entertainment industry and citizenship. That is that I find specifically very important and very interesting these days. It can go from the regulation of cultural citizenship to militarization of citizenship that is happening uh, increasingly in our social context. Uh, in terms of uh, political and cultural citizenship, uh, I uh, would like to argue that the realm of modern citizenship is not limited to political citizenship, meaning participation in the sphere of electoral politics and public sphere, but uh, it is a regulatory process which includes uh, many things, includes subjectivities, uh, authorities, operative concepts, as well as institutional practices of normativities. And, and as, as you know, normativities are uh, constantly constructed, reconstructed in the cultural sphere and then applied and also practiced in the political sphere, in the sphere of political citizenship. So it's important to understand also that uh, increasingly, with the expansion of media technology, uh, with the expansion of new formation technologies, cyberspace, uh, cultural uh, citizenship is becoming more and more important because uh, we are no more uh, a citizen of a particular nation state because there are masses of migration, people moving around, and right now people could be you could be um, a member of a, a political citizen of a particular country, but also uh, a citizen in the cultural sphere of many, two, two different contexts. That's very distractive. I'm sorry, I didn't think of that. So, I'm going to turn it off. All right, so this is, um, it's, it's very difficult to, right now, to think of citizens as being, belonging to a particular nation state because uh, there, there are people who are living in the cultural sphere of two states, but part of have citizenship from one state. There are people who don't have any state. There are people who are part of the two states but don't, are not included in any of the nation states like uh, transgenders. So it's a kind of, it's a very interesting situation, global situation, and the issues of cultural citizenship is becoming more and more relevant to our discussions of, uh, of politics, uh, political participation, and so on. So it's really um, important also to understand that with the erosion of nation state, with the new forms of globalization, nation states are not only uh, f uh, regulatory forces. They are not, they are not only uh, institutions that are imposing or that are including citizens in their institution. There are other institutions that are very important, including uh, transnational NGOs, uh, 
um, transnational cooperation, many other forces are involved in regulating citizenship. I, in discussing citizenship, I uh, use the concept of governmentality. And, uh, and what I refer, when I refer to governmentality, I refer to its Foucauldian uh, sense to talk about technologies of domination of others and those of the self. So I see governmentality as a place where the self and the technologies of power comes together in this kind of regulatory mode. So I also argue that the information technologies have become an increasingly important part of what Foucault calls the art of government, especially in regulating both its discipline and sovereignty. And in, in, uh, in this context, that it is in this context that I refer to the convergence between entertainment te technologies as well as uh, and, and political citizenship. So in a sense, you see uh, this art of government trying to actually overcome this crisis that have been created for the nation states. That's kind of uh, they are kind of, in my view, they are uh, postmodern crisis. Crisis that are, uh, I, I have argued in the past that uh, they are crisis of coercion, crisis of cognition, and crisis of uh, production. Meaning that uh, there's increasingly people are asking the question of who are we? Who has the authority to rule us? Who uh, and, and so on? What is our place in the in the kind of in the production and reproduction of of uh, social reality? So, in a sense, that this crisis are still there. Crisis of also security, right? Who is us? Who is part of us? Who is belonging? Who is not belonging? Who is outside? And it's in in this kind of in this complicated, complex sphere of. Uh, cultural flows and exchanges and circulation that we talk, we should, we should imagine talking and we should talk about uh, nation, Islamic nationalism and transnationalism. As for um, methodological questions when it comes to the question of uh, Islam, Iran, uh, Middle East, I am actually, I, I think it's impossible to understand uh, the situation without understanding the history of colonialism. And I am uh, very much invested in post-colonial and transnational feminist scholarship who have contributed consistently to our understanding of colonialism as well as the impact of colonialism in, on social relations in a post-colonial context, and especially when it comes to gender and women's issues, it's extremely important to understand issues of uh, colonialism. The second uh, point I'm interested in, as you know, uh, modernity, and especially colonial modernity, uh, invested uh, extensively in, in uh, the politics of the site, or in the vision, or the, uh, in regimes of visibility, to uh, actually to construct identities, right? You are familiar with the discourse of uh, Orientalism, with uh, the notion of gaze, with the optic uh, kind of investment in optic vision. So there's a lot of investment in the sight, right? In the eyesight specifically. So I think that is very important when we discuss uh, 
they, we discuss issues of um, Islam and Muslims and so on because there has been uh, a huge investment in the politics of sight. That's why I'm really interested in the feminist uh, cultural studies because I think feminist cultural studies are able to offer uh, a theoretical uh, perspective on uh, the importance of of the gaze, the importance of of, uh, of the sight being central to our uh, perception of reality, production of reality, and perception of the other. Also, I, I think, unfortunately, Middle Eastern studies have not been very interested in, in cultural studies, and there hasn't been any conversation between Middle Eastern studies and an area studies with cultural studies, and this is something that in my book I made an effort to bring these two important fields of scholarship into conversation with each other, arguing that it's extremely important to not only interrogate the politics of uh, representation, but also the ways in which audiences relate to various kind of cultural materials and how various cultural materials circulate in the world and, and uh, what are kind of the politics of circulation, politics of production, politics of consumption. So it's very important in my view. I'm also interested in uh, post-structuralist uh, approaches to uh, the study of uh, Islam and uh, Muslims because I think even though I, I, I believe that uh, it's um, very important to do historical research, right? Uh, I am less interested in a kind of, in a, in a structuralist obsession with history. I'm more interested in, uh, in uh, the interrogation of the ways in which value along with subjects or identities uh, are produced through binary opposition. So I'm, I'm, I'm interested in interrogating binary oppositions because in other world, I argue that we are still in an age where dichotomies are major forms of understanding reality. Uh, just think about uh, dichotomies such as East, West, tradition, modernity, Orient, Occident, female, male, barbaric, civilized, religious, secular. When you come to the realm of Islam or or uh, discourses on Islam, there, there are many of them that are actually that have a, an impact on our understanding of the ways in which we talk about Muslims and Muslim world and Islam and so on. So these discourses uh, that rely on uh, such binaries are indeed the most successful in making uh, the most of the global marketplace because it seems to me that now binaries are capitalizing on, on uh, are, are, have become part of the, the kind of consumer capitalism. So in terms of um, in terms of um, issues of talking in uh, dichotomies and challenging dichotomies. When you get to the question of uh, Muslim world, uh, there is um, uh, a, a foundationalist or fundamentalist re reading of Islam and Muslims. So it seems to me that uh, it's a 
very much uh, part of the, our dominant mainstream ways of thinking, the more Muslim world become fragmented and divided and there are various tendencies, various ideologies uh, engaging with each other, at least in the case of Iran, the more you see a foundationalist reading, desire to read Islam's and Muslim in, in unificatory and foundationalist way. And even though I guess I think there is a kind of a, a, a there are people who make a fundamentalist claim to Islam, right? Uh, claiming an, uh, uh, the right, uh, they claim uh, the right traditions. They, they claim an, uh, the authenticity of Islam, but still the ways in which we read what is going on in the, in the Muslim world is very much a foundationalist uh, mode of uh, looking at that. And part of this uh, modes of reading have to do with the ways in which we imagine or we think of women. So it seems to me there is a, consistently since uh, late 19th century, we talk about women in the Muslim and Arab world as passive victims of patriarchies, as in need of protection, in need of liberation. And right now it's becoming a very important component of our ideology, I think. We part of the justification for the occupation of Afghanistan or Iraq was uh, to save Iraqi women and Afghani women. It was in the name of women that we went in and occupied that to liberate them. So I'm, I'm actually there uh, um, just recently um, Nadia Al-Ali talked about the question of liberation and what kind of liberation, interrogating the kind of liberation we claim. So, and, and especially right now, uh, there is the, this claim to saving Muslim women from uh, Muslim men, and the signifier of women is being circulated in uh, various, uh, various uh, venues, and it's really, it's, uh, it's uh, a, a, a problematic position. So also, uh, when we talk about Islam and Muslims, there is this essentializing notion which constantly frames our, our understanding of uh, Muslims and Islam. And, uh, and it seems to me we, we are at a point where we should raise profound questions for these forms of essentializing, because these forms of essentialism sometimes come in a very sophisticated scholarly ways, right? Sometimes uh, civilizational thinking, the ways in which that civilizations are essentially different from each other, and they, are, they, have, uh, they have cultural components that can't be changed, right? Some of them are fixed in time and history. So it's very much uh, influencing our ways of thinking. So uh, I, I think it's time for us to raise questions such as what are the consequences of placing Islam beyond the encoded experience of language, culture, and bodies, and of positing it as an entity that can only be argued for or against in terms of an internal explanation. What kind of foundational place is reserved for what is intolerable in modernity in this framework? And why is it that no matter what happens in various geopolitical locations, Islam and Muslims are cons constantly being comprehended through recurring foundationalist and fundamentalist frameworks in the West? 
As you know, the question of uh, fundamentalism is not peculiar to Islam, right? There are various forms. The concept is actually very problematic, and when I used it in the book, I used it in a in a very problematic way because I think we have been trying to depict what is going on in the Islam in the Muslim world. Uh, we have been trying to find concepts which would relate to what is going on, and people have been using different concepts such as Islamist movements, militant Islam, political Islam, uh, fundamentalist Islam. Those are all problematic concepts, right? Where, where you work with each of them, and it, it takes you to a, uh, to, a uh, to 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 trouble. So um, I. I uh, I, 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 I think that fundamentalism is not peculiar to the context of Islam. If we are talking about a claim to authenticity, a claim to foundation, a form of ethnic absolutism, that is actually happening in both various religious traditions as well as secular discourses. So in a sense, we are not, I, I do not limit my definition wherever I, with cautious and problem, use the notion of fundamentalism. I do not limit myself to the context of religion. I think there are a, a number of people who use secularism to talk about religion, and, and that is also as problematic as a kind of fund, fund, fundamentalist or foundationalist claim to religion, which is problematic, right? So I uh, refer to uh, three concepts at the same time. I refer to Islamic nationalism first to talk about both territorial and national framing of Islam in Iran, as well as to various negotiations and interpretation emerging in the context of the nation state. So I argue that in the context of nation state, you, the Islamic uh, movement now have become, uh, Islam has become the ideology of the state, and there are lots of negotiations that are happening within that context, and that, that when it comes to that, I talk about Islamic nationalism. I also use the concept of, as I said, Islamic fundamentalism in a, in a, as, as problematic as it, to refer to a concomitant national and transnational identitarian claim to authenticity based on what is called the right tradition. I argue that that trend in any religious ideology or in any kind of secular uh, discourse is a foundationalist, fundamentalist claim because any text, any discourse is open to interpretation, is open to uh, revision, is open to uh, hermeneutic reading, is open to deconstruction. So uh, fixing anything, any text, any discourse in time and space would, would make it, um, uh, uh, it, it would be a foundationalist, fundamentalist claim to that. So I also talk about uh, Islamic transnationalism to, um, to talk about a, a, both a movement and a system of representation that moves by way of global networks of communication, trade, travel, and, and I would argue that its vectors are money, ideas, bodies, and consumer goods. So as you see, uh, there are a lot of... Um, uh, consumer uh, commodities that are being now produced through this, this circulation of transnational Islam, right? The, uh, the kind of Islamic fashion, 
uh, Islamic uh, modes of uh, communication, uh, Islamic tourism, right? Uh, the, those are kind of, those are uh, spaces where, uh, uh, where transnational Islam functions. And of course, uh, these uh, three um, definitions are not necessarily consistent with each other or, or con uh, they don't create a continuum. Sometimes they are in contradiction and sometimes they create actually tension and conflict. For example, right now the notion of Muslim woman as it's being circulated transnationally is creating a homogeneous, a unified site of identity for women. But if you uh, think about uh, the category and take it to various locations, the meaning of that category is very different from one location to another. Let's say the experience of Muslim women in the U.S. where there is racialization is very different from the experience of Muslims in uh, Muslim women, let's say, in India, where they are a minority group, right? And it's very different from the experience of Muslim women in Iran, where the state rules in the name of Islam. Or uh, the, uh, if, if, if you take it to various contexts, it's very, the category actually becomes very problematic. But right now, in the kind of transnational Islam, you, the, the concept is used both in terms of depicting the Islamic otherness as well as a, a, an identitarian claim, a claim to uh, 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 an identity. So uh, also I argue that uh, the formation of Islamic nationalism, uh, Islamic nationalism or transnationalism is neither a return to an archaic past, as some people might think, or, uh, or it's not, uh, it has nothing to do with the essence, essence of Islam as uh, some racist or racializing ideologies would believe it. I, I, uh, I argue that the Islamic nationalism is a byproduct of colonial modernity and the encounter of, uh, in the case, particular case of Iran, Iranian cultural meanings, including religious meanings with the old forms of civilizational imperialism, as well as the new forms of civilizational thinking or the new uh, forms of uh, racialization. And uh, what I mean by civilizational thinking is a particular kind of thinking which uses all discourses of colonialism and new notions such as the clash of civilization uh, and, and uh, that, that is pretty deeply essentializing, essentialist uh, oppositional uh, way of thinking to talk about cultures and religion. I find it uh, very problematic. I also, I think not the Islamic nationalism, transnationalism is not only a byproduct of modernity, which is uh, using, which is engaged with modernity, the ideals and ideals of modernity, meaning citizenship, nation state, um, uh, political participation, electoral politics, and so on and so forth, but also uh, has, uh, has become productive of new subject position, has become productive of new discourses. So, and what I mean, for example, in the context of Iran, uh, not only Islamic nationalism was kind of, was a modern phenomenon, but also uh, created a, high, a, a form of hybridity between the kind of pre-Islamic uh, Iran 
and the Islamic Iran. But as you know, in the context of modernization, we constantly dichotomized between what was civilized, which was Persian, which was pre-Islamic, and, and, and Islam as, as something which was against modernization, which was uh, fanatic, which was mm, tradition, and so on, has to be renounced and rejected. And I think the kind of construction, formation of Islamic nationalism in the context of Iran overcome that moment of, that dichotomous moment of separating between Persian, Iranian, pre-Islamic Persia, and the kind of Islamic Persia and the modern Persia. It, it, it brought them together in uh, this, this new notion of ummat, which includes, which is very similar to, in my view, to imagine community, even though it brings together the temporality of myth or the myth of Shia, uh, Shiism, to in conversation with the kind of modern myth of progress as well as the increasingly with the kind of temporality of prime time TV. So it's, it's a, it has created a new kind of discourse, also new forms of subjects, both in terms of masculinities and femininities. Um, one aspect, I'm conscious I forgot about this. Um, one aspect of, um, of citizenship that I, I, I am arguing, cultural citizenship, is this huge investment in, in visibility and in visual culture, in the re regimes of uh, visibility, as I, as I would put it. And in, in my book, I extensively talk about the ways in which uh, in late 19th century, the Orientalist discourse vis-a-vis -vis Persia, vis-a-vis -vis Iran, actually depicted Iran in particularistic terms. And one of the important uh, dis discourses which was circulated at that time was, uh, one was that Iranians were civilized, but Persians had this uh, uh, wonderful civilization, but since uh, they adopted Islam, they became uh, backward and fanatic and so on. This is a discourse which is circulated. The other discourse is the discourse on women, Iranian women, like Persian women are being depicted as lazy, obsessed with food and sex and so on and so forth. And, as, and that, that kind of ideology, those kind of discourses were borrowed by modernizing Iranian elite. And modernizing Iranian elite, when they started to think of establishing a, a nation state, they actually used that kind of ideology, used those kind of terminology, used those tropes that were invested by a, a number of European Orientalists or travelers or writers and so on, and it started to talk about uh, Iran in those terms. And, and also here is, there was a, uh, there's an interesting uh, situation because uh, you had us, you had on the one hand male elite which wanted to invest in, in the modernization of Iran, westernization of Iran, and then you had a discourse on women that uh, was kind of depicting Iranian women as uh, backward and so on and so forth. And what the modernist westernizing elite did 
that actually they, in my view, they actually constructed women as the other. They constructed women as those backward uh, citizens that needed to be civilized. And uh, I refer to the kind of to the event or a spectacle of unveiling in Iran, forced unveiling under Reza Shah in uh, 1934, where women were unveiled publicly by the force of police and so on. So it's, it's just one aspect of that. And I can give you in the book, there are lots of examples about how also masculinity was invested in that. So we kind of, we started to invest in this militarized forms of citizenship, which kind of created power for male subjects to civilize women, right? And we took on uh, the task of civilizing Women, and I, here I use a theoretical concept, uh, and I call it uh, civic body, and I argue that uh, we started to think of a, a, an abstracted body, right? Because but women's bodies were completely different, right? Iran is a multi-ethnic, multi-religious society. People have different traditions from north to south, from east to west. So, but we created the body of the unveiled woman, right? As an abstracted body that could be unveiled, right? And through that unveiling, we could, we could civilize women. So in that sense, masculinity or masculinity of modernized and Iranian elite actually was enabled to establish itself as the citizen of the modern world by taking uh, responsibility for civilizing women, right? And then there is, a, the, there is a lot of writing in discourses on how women can participate in the project of modernization, westernization, so on. So I don't go um, uh, to, um, I don't go there because it's uh, an extensive discussion and hopefully if you get a chance to look at the book, there is an extensive discussion of that. However, my point is that the civic body as a site of modernization, citizenship. So the question of citizenship or political citizenship is inseparable in the case of Iran from the question of visibility, from the ways in which we invested in visual tropes, we invested in gender tropes, we invested also in tropes that actually enabled us to talk about the projects of modernization and westernization. So we wanted to become modern, we wanted to become western, and in order to become modern, we had to reject and objectify and suppress what, is, what was called tradition, right? And tradition, and part of tradition was, of course, the body of woman, right? Which needed to be civilized, but in particularistic ways, in uh, imposing, let's say, a heteronormative order where women needed to appear in the public spheres with their husbands. They had to uh, unveil themselves and so on and so forth. So we started this, this, uh, this project. So this project of citizenship then became as a productive site of creating a citizen or revolutionary subjects in the context of pre-revolutionary Iran, people started to invest uh, and mobilize 
these categories or these tropes that were considered tradition, that were considered abject, that were considered uh, pre-modern or uh, barbaric or fanatic or not civilized. And they, it, this, these categories became productive of new subject positions. It, it start, we started to kind of hermeneutically redefine them. For example, the question of fashion or appearance became a very important component, component of Iranian revolution. Uh, they, uh, a number of women invested in veiling as a site of resistance, as a site of uh, mobilization, revolutionary practice, and so on. And even those who were not invested in religious ideologies, they actually invested in appearance and fashion as a site of revolutionary practices. For example, leftists would dress up in particularistic ways. Uh, religious um, groups started to use veiling mostly, and so on and so forth. And the same thing is true in the case of men, but it's a, it's a little different in that case. So in that sense, uh, civic body, this abstracted body of citizenship, became a, a site of revolutionary negotiation, hermeneutic interpretation of religion. Uh, of, of religion. But what is, um, the point is that you see consistently a relationship between the ways in which culture produces meaning and invests meaning in the notions of citizenship. So political citizenship is never, uh, it's, it's, it doesn't, it's constantly, constantly uh, negotiated, uh, invested uh, by cultural meanings. So cultural meanings const constantly invest in political citizenship with gender ideas, with ethnic ideas, and so on. And in the context of nation state building, you know that most of the nation states invest also in the kind of, in the language of majority, in a particular uh, cultural traditions, the food, right? They all become a, a site of unification. The nation becomes this unified entity where everyone invests in that. So, and, and from food to uh, ideas to religion to language and so on. Um, so in, in the context of, so I'm trying to cover all these um, decades, so in, in, uh, in um, a, a few sentences. So what, what is really significant, what has been significant, that in the kind of post-revolutionary Iran, the Iranian nation state has been deeply invested in this cat identitarian categories, in the kind of, in these regimes of visibility. So that is why the kind of imposition of veil, even though there were masses of Iranian women who veiled themselves as a site of resistance, as a site of opposition, as a site of participation in the revolution. And uh, they, uh, they actually, uh, I think, veiling actually was a site of agency for lots of women who participated in the Iranian revolution and also participated in the Islamic uh, uh, Republic and created a form of revolutionary fashion. So in the kind of post-revolutionary Iran, uh, there are lots of uh, uh, images of veiled women that, are, that take this very combative, modern, 
form. So, and these forms are kind of, uh, these forms of militancy are not, are not, have nothing to do with tradition, right? Modernity is invested in these forms of militancy, these forms of pat political participation. So anyhow, but uh, uh, gradually, I think, these forms of combative fashion has been uh, re also uh, converged with uh, Islamic fashion, right? Uh, it has been a few years, in the last few years, in Iran there has been a fashion show. And, and also, as you know, Islamic fashion now is a, a transnational mode of uh, production. So takbir industries or factories in Turkey produce uh, Islamic fashion and, and fashion shows in Iran increasingly are, are taking this kind of this revolutionary identity into the realm of consumerism and consumer culture uh, so on, which is um, which is uh, which is a very interesting uh, phenomenon so uh, now what I would like to um, get to is that uh, yes, there is this notion of citizenship in Iran, which is very much invested in appearance, in fashion, in gender identities, in, in distinction, in the question of difference or difference of gender identities. But also there are cultural discourses that are constantly investing in these categories, that are constantly uh, revising this category, putting meaning in these categories. So, and then right now, of course, there is a huge um, influence or the, the cultural citizenship extends from Iran to various diasporic uh, locations because uh, a number of Iranian, masses of Iranians left Iran and now are living in this uh, diasporic positions, uh, locations. And so there is um, a number of Iranians who participate in the notion of citizenship, but through their participation in the sphere of culture and not necessarily in the sphere of politics. As, and also it's becoming a, a complicated situation because a number of people who live outside Iran now have the intention of saving Iran. And unfortunately, that becomes a, a problem with the militaristic investment of the U.S. foreign policy in targeting Iran because then it becomes uh, uh, this, uh, they, they have started to really uh, to participate in that form of militarization uh, as in of Iran by claiming but by trying to save Iran or by 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 their claim to uh, to change Iran so it's a kind of a, it's a complicated negotiation going on between what is going on in Iran and what is going on uh, outside Iran in terms of those who consider themselves as citizens of uh, either cultural or political citizens of Iran. And in that sense, there is also a lot of tension between Persian nationalism, which is now becoming very important among diasporic communities, and Islamic nationalism. So it says there is a lot, a lot of tension and contradiction between these two forms of identification, because a lot of Iranians who live outside Iran who have been uh, discriminated against or subjected to uh, racialization, they try to not claim 
uh, to not associate with anything modern in Iran, right? We just uh, go back to the glorious past, which was the age of Persia, and uh, where Persia had this wonderful civilization and so on, and uh, invest in that. And uh, then kind of in Iran, uh, the tensions are between uh, a form of Islamic nationalism, which used to be an oppositional movement, and it still sees itself at a regional level as an oppositional movement, but in reality is, is in charge of a nation state. And as a nation state, it has different functions and different roles, and so has been, has, has, has changed, and so the nature of the nation state has changed also the nature of Islamic uh, ideology as such. So uh, what I see now happening is uh, a disjuncture between uh, uh, Islamic nationalism and what is happening in Iran. And, 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 I, and, and I say disjuncture, I'm not, uh, I'm not suggesting that disjuncture means uh, a social revolution. Uh, this juncture means uh, dismantling is what is happening in Iran. But this juncture meaning uh, that now the Iran, Iranian uh, nationalism or Iranian Islamic nationalism is in uh, is being challenged by various forces that are very significant. And one of them is uh, is this. Uh, the issue of uh, subalternity and the poor. As you know, Islamic movement, and still is not Islamist movements in many parts of the world, is claiming that they, they, they speak for the poor. But in Iran now, as a nation state, this question of who is speaking for who is a, compl uh, is a complicated question as pretty much kind of uh, uh, being put into contradiction because uh, there are uh, super rich, uh, elite, Islamic elite, which is claiming to speak for uh, the poor, the Musazaf, and so on, as well as you know, populist leaders, and actually in the election of Ahmadinejad, his discourse was very much, uh, used very much a populist reference to the poor, the Musazaf, which was uh, very important in the beginning of the revolution to uh, create justification or uh, to promote his Presidency. So, in that sense, right now, who is speaking for the poor? It's not. Uh, it's not very clear. It's. It's. Uh, this. This question is being. Uh, is not a simple question. Then the other question is, the ways in which uh, many people now are participating in the uh, in in the. Uh, construction of Islamic knowledge since the revolution. There are lots of women actually who entered religious schools and the nature of religious uh, teaching now is being uh, changed because there are lots of people who participate in an institution which was very much masculinist, very much controlled by the male elite and by, by big ayatollahs and clergymen and so on. So it's also interesting to see what would be the, the impact of or the consequences of uh, groups that haven't been participant in this kind of, in learning the Islamic knowledge or interpreting it, what would be the impact of that. Then the other aspect of what is happening is that a lot of religious stories are now being narrated by filmmakers, 
TV producers, uh, and so on. So actually, as you know, Iran has a huge, a huge invest investment in media culture. And uh, there is a lot of, uh, most of the kind of, uh, uh, of, of the political elite, they all have websites and they're invested in cyberspace, for example. There are more than 70,000 Iranian bloggers. So Iran is very much invested in this kind of this uh, space that, that is a space of cultural citizenship. So in that sense, a lot of these stories now are being told by people who are not religious elite. They're not part of the religious elite. They're filmmakers, they're so on. And these stories are very much, uh, I would say, are uh, in an interesting way secularizing or what is being sacred now is being desacralized in an interesting way, as much as political participation in Iran by sacralizing political participation in the context of Iranian revolution, Iran was able to include citizens in this kind of modern regime of nation state. At the same time, a lot of the sacred uh, stories are being defined and redefined and interpreted and reinterpreted. That kind of creates a, a kind of plurality of voices that is interesting. The other disjuncture is between uh, a, a claim to, again, to uh, a claim to Islam uh, by various groups of women. So the category of Muslim women in Iran is pretty much fragmented because uh, there are women from that are uh, working with conservatives, with reformists. There's really what is meant by Islam is very different for let's say a woman who participate in uh, in the kind of in the in an inter in a conservative uh, ideology than in a reformist ideology than in uh, so it's a, it's kind of that that notion of who is the muslim woman who is the iranian muslim woman is very much fragmented and very much uh, divided right now so in uh, in terms of um, in terms of uh, cultural citizenship, it seems to me that the most interesting discussions and negotiations are happening in the sphere of uh, media and film and, uh, and TV. But TV is heavily controlled by the state, but media and film is a, is a space where a lot of political negotiations are being are happening, and and uh, and the reason for which media is, is really important is that first of all, uh, uh, Iranian revolution uh, before even Chiapas revolution was heavily invested in the media culture, right? So Michel Foucault calls it a cassette revolution. It was a revolution which invested highly in in the image in the in. Uh, uh, cassettes in uh, TV, uh, in uh, circulation of journals, and so on. Uh, also, um, uh, media continues to function an important role in, in, in the post-revolution in Iran. Immediately after the revolution, the Islamic Republic uh, actually took control of the film industry and TV industry and tried to kind of uh, revolutionize it or purify it. And, and, and actually, that move uh, created a lot of space for people who did not participate in the in entertainment industry. 
before the revolution. And I don't know if you have seen some of uh, Mahmal Bof's movies, uh, and especially Salam Cinema, where masses, uh, he advertises for uh, a few, uh, he needs a few people who can work on a movie, and thousands of people show up uh, to be interviewed. So it's kind of the whole taboo around cinema as being a place of entertainment, uh, an impure place. Is, uh, so it it's, uh, has overcome, and there, there are now uh, lots of people participating in that. Also, because of the political restrictions in other uh, sites, uh, media is, has much more potential to bring into people's attention uh, political issues. Uh, in addition, uh, I think um, uh, the performance of citizenship in the sphere of media is, has been subjected to has been subject to a lot of negotiation and discussions because uh, the media invests enormously with the images that are central to the, the context of the Iranian nation state. So now, what I would like to um, uh, talk a little bit about is a number of uh, films that are made in Iran and have been able to uh, to negotiate identity categories. And I would like to talk about several categories, categories of male-female, categories of uh, clergy versus secular, categories of criminal versus pious, uh, categories of... Uh, uh, of um, uh, us or uh, those who are located versus those that are dias diasporic, right? So uh, a number of movies have been produced in the last decade or so in Iran that are, that are really interesting, that are creating uh, very interesting critical materials for uh, questioning those kind of categories. And when I talk about these categories, these categories have been very crucial in impacting significantly uh, political citizenship in Iran. As you know, Ahmadinejad is a conservative, right, who won, and Khatami is a, uh, is a reformist, so, which, who is a clergyman. So, but if you go to public discourse uh, among diasporic Iranians and so on, the, the dichotomy of secular religious Ahund, Mokalla, the man with the hat versus the man with the turban. So it's so much that we always invest, like the negative, most of our negative stereotypes in the, in, in the uh, religious as opposed to the secular. So it's really interesting the ways in which these films mess up with categories of identity and they're, they're, they're uh, really important. So a concept that I have used in the book uh, that I would like to extend it to the notion of citizenship here is the concept of passing. Of course, passing is a theoretical concept that has been used in African-American studies, in queer studies, in, in gender and uh, women's studies. And, and uh, passing could be, I argue, that a number of films actually use passing implicitly or explicitly to challenge categories of identity. And I, I, I would say that this is not peculiar to Iran. What is interesting about this challenge or interrogation of identity is those identities are also part of modernity 
and modernity in various parts of the world. And that is why it seems to me they're, they're challenging, uh, on the one hand, the restrictive notions of Islamic nationalism. At the same time, they're taking modernity, they're putting modernity or ideas of modernity that are relying heavily on these categories into uh, crisis, or they take them into their limits. So I define passing could be translated in Farsi as gozar, and uh, it could be, it has been described by various authors as employing identity strategically or as a difference which is not quite visible, a state of lacking or lack of identity at its very presence. So it also refers to the creation of a space where the other can be seen and heard in the rupture of identity as continuum. So, so what is something which is really interesting and important uh, for us as scholars of gender studies. And also the concept refers to the failure of visual field to secure identity. So you see that how, how great of impact it might have on the notions of citizenship where we rely heavily on on, uh, let's say, gender, on race, on regimes of visibility to talk about inclusion and exclusion in the context of citizenship. So uh, I would like to broaden the concept of passing and take it to the context of political and cultural citizenship and argue that in the context of Iran, where there is a close link between the performance of identity and gender citizenship, both visual and visible since modernity have become an instrument of governmentality, politics, and disciplinary society. And indeed, scopic governance or a form of regulation through visual mediums have been central to regimes of modern and postmodern governmentality. So there are a number of movies that I can, uh, that I have um, uh, looked at, and uh, several of them are included in a, in, the, in a chapter of my books very extensively. I analyze them. And, uh, and uh, passing actually uh, comes. So there are a number of them that I'm going to uh, uh, name a few, and then if we get a chance, I can show you a few clips. So, uh, for example, Under the Moonlight. Is, uh, was, uh, is, me, is directed by Reza Mir Karimi, which depicts Hassan, a young religious student who, in order to become a clergy member, he has to uh, encounter, he has to go and meet a, a, a community under the bridge, uh, which is a community of objects, of entertainers, prostitutes, people who are not visible right now in, in Tehran, in the kind of uh, public sphere. So through that, actually, he becomes, he starts questioning this, uh, the, the, the whole, um, the whole uh, process of becoming a clergyman, the wearing of the guard that he, he needs to do as part of the ceremony. So it's uh, the film, it's uh, the first film in Iran which actually the camera penetrates the religious space, and it's, it's, uh, um, it has um, a, a number of uh, shots from the kind of Iranian religious uh, school, uh, uh, which is a, a kind of very um, 
masculine kind of a space and so on. So the film actually, uh, uh, I, I heard that uh, for its first screening, people expected uh, an explosive reaction, but it was actually, it was uh, received uh, very quietly. And, and it's a, a I, since I, I actually talk very extensively about the film in the book, I'm not going to talk about that. But there is another film, which is, uh, which is again, the importance of the fil uh, film is that the, 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 there is a challenge between, there is an interrogation of institutional religion versus popular religion. Uh, it shows uh, moments where uh, religious uh, leaders uh, are, are connect with the people through cell phones and media technologies, but there is no real connection with what is going on under the bridge, right? With what is being criminalized or objectified and so on. So in that sense, for him, in order to accept his God, then he, uh, at some point, he, he claims to be the uh, brother uh, of, a, of a prostitute. So in that sense, it actually, uh, shows to what extent the Iranian state needs to deal with issues that are part of the kind of part of the uh, citizenship, part of the uh, dealing with the complexity of, of citizens of all kinds. So the, the other uh, film, which is a, a, a new film, and I don't know if you have seen it, it's called The Lizard, Marmulak. Uh, this is a, a, an extremely interesting film because uh, it goes beyond a number of dichotomies, meaning the dichotomy of religious versus secular, criminal versus pious, uh, popular versus elite, uh, popular uh, music versus you know, religious reciting. So the film actually, even in, at, in terms of linguistically, it juxtaposes uh, a, a, um, a language which is the language of uneducated and and the kind of elite language because it's the story of a, of a thief who escapes um, uh, prison uh, but by passing as a as an akhun, as a mullah uh, he wears the garb of a clergyman who is at the hospital with him and then leaves the prison with that. And it's a comedy, it's hilarious, it's very funny because he's, he, gets, uh, he doesn't know how to pray, right? He doesn't know how to preach. So he, uh, he uses uh, a language which is, uh, which is really interesting and uh, which is kind of outlaw perverse to talk about uh, various situations, to respond and so on. And he stops at the right moment, right, before the language becomes uh, explicit. So it's, um, it's a film which, is, um, which actually challenges also uh, a, a, a foundationalist claim to religion. And as you see here, there is a, uh, there is a, uh, a sentence which gets to be repeated in the film is that God is the heaviest dude in gentleness, uh, the heaviest dude in kindness, the heaviest dude in friendship, the heaviest dude in forgiveness. So it's a really, there's a, it's a different notion of uh, religion, a religion which is, which is able to understand 
the, uh, the, the other, right? Uh, what, what, is the, uh, uh, what is being constructed as the other or the, the, uh, the outlaw and so on. Then uh, there is a, an older film called Adam. There are many actually. Offside, you were giving the example of Offside. Uh, uh, which is about a group of women who pass as men to enter the uh, uh, football stadium. And, and you know that it, what, that was a huge controversy in Iran, that if women could enter the studio or not. So and, and, uh, a few managed to enter the studio, and the film is about them. And apparently, actually, last week I heard that uh, a, a number of women entered the studio uh, passing as Koreans, because a group of Koreans were in Iran, and apparently they managed to get into that and uh, go to, so, to that. And then uh, another older film, Adam Barfi, who actually uh, talks about, uh, who's about, and these, are, these um, directors are not secular directors. There are directors who have been part of the Iranian revolution. They have been very much invested in Islam. Actually, the fact that they can talk about religion and they can make movies about religion is because they have been, they are part of the kind of uh, mainstream. So I'm not talking about like alternative independent filmmakers. So, and, and uh, Adam Barfi is actually depicts um, uh, an Iranian man who in order to uh, leave Iran and go to the West has to pass as a woman. So, and then the, the, again, this is a comedy. The genre of comedy has become uh, very much appealing to a number of filmmakers to be able to talk about uh, these issues. Uh, in any case, do I have time or am I done? Yes. Oh, yeah, over and over. I'm so sorry. I didn't realize you should have stopped me. Anyhow, okay, I think I don't have uh, time for my uh, clips. Um, what I would like to uh, maybe... Now, let me finish here and, and ask you for questions. I didn't realize I went too long. So, all right, yes, thank you. We all need a time police. <laughs> so it's. Uh, I, know. I, can't, I was looking at that. It's a quarter to five and it's a quarter to six. Gosh. Uh, probably, yes. It's bizarre. Yeah, maybe. Oh, I changed it in. Um, in Dallas, I think it's still at that. Oh, God. So sorry. Okay. Any questions? And you should have stopped me. See you inside. Thanks. Yes. Yes. for themselves and investigate themselves. The classical 
ulama interpreted Quran is the male, and also many of them, the four Sunni schools and the, the Jafari fiqh, so they are not the classical interpretation, interpretation of the Quran, and that's why there's four Sunni schools and Jafari and Ismaili yes. and Zaidi, they have their own fiqh. Yes. So they want to know, they want to study Arabic, many of them, yes. Egyptians are not them still, and they would like to study fiqh and Islamic jurisprudence, and, and they want to interpret themselves. Is similar thing happening in Iran that some of the women will go to Qum, for example, yes. or anywhere else that they will become the future, especially in the Shia branch of Islam, yes. it's much better because Ishtihad has not been yes. closed in Sunnis. Yes. So, so that, that's more particularly in Iran that there's a new crop of female men. Uh, so there's this, this movement going on? How is it in Iran? Yes, I think in Iran I have heard that a number of women now are becoming talabe in Qom. And I haven't seen any research on the kind of this uh, new wave of uh, students who are, uh, who are going to a theological school to study. I know that they uh, can still, there is still no public preacher, like Friday, uh, speeches are always given by men, but I heard that in one of the Iranian cities, sermons, yes, and actually just recently I heard that a woman actually gave a sermon, but uh, um, I, I, I don't know how, how valid that information is, but one incident of that. But it's, it's really interesting what uh, the outcome of women going to religious school and studying religion and becoming actually uh, a, a reader of the religious text. I think the outcome, I, I don't know, but I know that many women are now going to come to religious school and also uh, a number of them have invested in uh, theological education. Uh, but what is the outcome, I don't know. But I know from popular figures that there are, there are, there are a number of Islamist women that are uh, challenging uh, interpretation, various interpretation of Islam. Uh, for example, there is a woman who's super ultra-conservative but is uh, very much challenging, like reformist readings of of religion, so it's interesting to, to what extent there are all these um, women who are taking part in in uh, in the in, in interpretation of the religious text, which actually creates a lot of fragmentation among women, right? Because uh, right now you have women who are uh, who have an, a conservative understanding of religious texts. You are women who are much more invested in reformists. Uh, ideologies, uh, there are women who are working on various sides of Iranian political spectrum. And so that is, that is very interesting. They're radically different from each other. Those who are, uh, have a fundamentalist claim to religion and those that are actually challenging those foundationalist readings of religion. Uh, so that is... Uh, that is, but, but uh, how, what would be the impact of that and how many of these women would be able to actually perform public sermons and Friday sermons, that would be something to, 
uh, to maybe to study in the future or to see what, what happens in the future would be really interesting. I don't blame you, you should be tired. <laughs> Any well, other questions? Well, yes. That, you know, we'll, we'll go ahead and thank you. And yes, sure. If anybody wants to chat formally, that's fine. There's still food outside, and since um, we're packing up everything in 10 minutes, anybody who wants to stick around and take food with them, we're giving it all Yes. Have this responsibility. Yes. My daughter is.